This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Our all-party panel is in the house, and it's always a party when that happens. We've had the weekend to digest the election results. We've heard Doug Ford's first public comments as Premier-designate. And this is a good time for a post-mortem. Of course, we want to hear from you. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 866 740-4740. I'm here with Bob Richardson, Public Affairs Advisor and Senior Counsel at National Public Relations, Kim Wright, an NDP strategist with Hill & Knowlton Strategies, and Mike Van Solen, Principal at Navigator Limited. Hi, welcome everybody. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Now, before we get to last Thursday's vote, there is bigger news today. And of course, that's Donald Trump's Twitter war against Justin Trudeau and Canada. And actually, conservative politicians, including former Prime Minister uh, Stephen Harper and uh, Doug Ford, have come out in support of the Prime Minister. So uh, what's your take on that, starting with Bob? Well, I think it's uh, both. Uh, it makes sense for them to do that, and it's uh, and it's probably good politics for them. Uh, I think about ninety percent of uh, Canadians, according to Pew uh, study, um, uh, disapprove of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, what he's talking about is pure nonsense. Uh, it's embarrassing that he has these acolytes around him who are at the back end of their careers who will say anything and do anything just to kind of hold on to a little piece of power. So it's really quite pathetic to watch, uh, and it's embarrassing for the United States. And I think increasingly you will see senators and congressmen and governors uh, leading U.S. Um, business organizations like the Chamber of Commerce and other ones starting to hit back and suggest that this is not the appropriate way to uh, be dealing with your uh, longtime allies and friends. Kim? Absolutely. Trade matters. And we've seen this, whether it's been by America or other trade conversations that we've been having uh, between Ontario and other jurisdictions. Uh, when you're your largest trading partner getting into a Twitter battle or any other battle is never good politics. Um, but it was frankly only a matter of time before his uh, tweets decided to to go at Canada. But I'm, I'm quite glad to see that everyone uh, across the political spectrum is defending Canada and, and the Prime Minister today on trade. And Mike, uh, that's all true, but there's a lot of uh, 
commentary that I've seen that yeah. says, you know, notwithstanding that, we could be the big losers in this. 100%. I've, I, this has always been the risk of going into uh, a conversation about NAFTA, um, probably with any president, uh, but in particular with this president who wants to have a deal. Uh, he, uh, there's also a constituency of Trump voters uh, who, from the Rust Belts in particular, you know, whether you agree with the remedy or not, have found that they've been left behind by the economic success the U.S. has had in recent decades. And this was one of the solutions that he uh, he put out to voters was that he was going to get better deals. Um, and it still is a big challenge for us. We we uh, They are, you know, 80% of our, our trade. So the negotiating table was never even uh, to start with. And we may have logic and reason on our side, but he has uh, sort of might and unpredictability, I suppose. So uh, these are really high stakes. I Like everyone else, I, I'm really heartened to see that all political parties have sort of rallied around and said, uh, we got to look after Canada's interests uh, in this together, not be partisans about it. And I suppose that only underscores how important this all is to our country. Okay, let us turn back to the election. And uh, we were all together here two weeks ago after the final debate, and things looked a little different at that point. Here's what some of you said then. Bob, prediction? I think uh, Andrea Horvath is on the move, uh, but I think the Conservatives have an efficient vote. I think uh, Kathleen Wynne did a very good job for the Liberals last night and I think might be able to attract some of that traditional Liberal vote home. I don't expect them to form the next government, but I think they may be able to maximize some of the seats that would have been maybe a little bit on the bubble. Kim? I think we are in times where people are taking a real look at what Andrea Horvath and her team, and there is a team around her of really experienced parliamentarians uh, as well as staff and some really quality candidates that uh, that just might surprise where uh, how good that they are going to be when when they get uh, when they get there I think the real test will be now that we're at this point, when Ontarians really look at the NDP plan, will it look affordable? And that's the question I think Ontarians are going to wrestle with in the coming uh, 10 days or whatever is left. And they'll have a real choice between the PCs and the Conservatives. Uh, As Bob points out, the PC vote's pretty efficient. I still think they're well-placed to win. Well, they did choose between the PCs and the Conservatives. <laughs> Mike, you were right there. Yeah, yeah. No, I had uh, really looking into the uh, future with that comment. Um, <laughs> but, but I did. I do think, uh, in many ways, uh, Ontarians, you know, a plurality of them, anyways, decided that uh, affordability was an issue. And and there's two real different ways to look at affordability. The NDP had offer a, a lot of uh, you know, different programs, entitlement programs, that uh, on 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 one respect, free childcare. Uh, you know, for example. Uh, reductions in hydro rates uh, beyond what uh, others had offered that may have looked like it could make life more affordable but when they peeled back the, the onion, so to speak, and looked at the different layers of the platform on offer, they realized that there was cost with those things. And, and there is concern. I, I think there was real concern about the levels of debt indebtedness we had as a province. And there was concern that that would only continue with an NDP government. So I think what, uh, what Doug and uh, the PCs ultimately prevailed with was a plan that, uh, an attitude of going into government that said, we're going to exercise some restraint. And 
and try to find efficiencies where we can. And uh, we're going to make life more affordable, for example, with the gas tax, um, with, with some cuts to income tax. But we can't grow government and we can't, uh, we can't, uh, we can't look past uh, the rising annual debt uh, that we're tacking on for future generations. And, and I think that was really pivotal in uh, what happened uh, last week on the 7th. Well, Kim, you mentioned experienced parliamentarians, but I think uh, the other parties made some traction by saying who's who's in their cabinet, and they have uh, quite a number of social justice warriors. Uh, do you agree that that kind of hindered the NDP? I, I, I would have liked to have seen a, a broader promotion of what those people can do, but what I'm also excited by is that Andrea is now the leader of the official opposition. She has all of her previous caucus uh, that ran again, they've all returned, and some really good candidates that are moving forward into, into Queen's Park. And forgetting the unofficial opposition type of rhetoric we've heard out of the New Democrats, this is their best showing uh, in the Ontario government uh, since 1995. Pretty excited about what can be done and uh, what those strong parliamentarians can bring uh, come the September re- re- uh, resumption of the legislature. But I would like to say, you know, the, con- the Conservatives did very well across the province. There were a lot of places where the New Democrats uh, historically hadn't done well that uh, their vote totals went up significantly. And I think there was things that resonated that Andrea had done and the party had done. And there's always le- learning lessons. And we're really excited for what the next four years can bring. Uh, Bob, uh, post-mortem, uh, mortem, I think that uh, describes the Liberal Party, and y- you were right, they, they did not form the government. No, I think they did uh, about where I thought. Uh, I think I had them as low as four seats. They ended up uh, getting seven. Um, I think in my comments I said the NDP were a bit on the move. They stalled, and they stalled actually because of a very good, I think, last two weeks by the Conservatives. I thought that they were focused. I thought their tour was focused. The leader was focused. Uh, Their media management was good. Their ads really, you know, squarely went after the NDP and helped stall, stall them. Uh, so I think uh, their jingle was good, and their their jingle was uh, was kind of cute too as well. Um, the other thing that hurt the Liberal Party was this nonsense resignation five days before the uh, vote by the leader. Uh, I think it hurt us in seats like St. Paul's, where we would traditionally win. The NDP never got more than 19% of the vote. We narrowly lost the seat to the I, NDP. I, I live there. I was shocked, and I had not one but two pollsters telling me they thought it could go conservative. And with different boundaries, it had been in the past, and driving around, you saw a lot of liberal signs. So I was really surprised. Well, it ended up being a tight race there. We lost a seat in Thunder Bay by 81 votes, Eglinton Lawrence by less than 1%, etc. So I think that gamble, and look, I get it. They were. It was a Hail Mary pass, and you're in a mess at the end of the campaign. I've been in a few losing campaigns myself, so I, I'm not passing judgment. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I feel their pain, but uh, I, I'm going to say that that was not helpful, and I think it cost us a few seats as opposed to winning us a few seats. Okay. Uh, turning points in the campaign. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? The... Uh I, well, I think uh, Bob has just uh, identified one, which was uh, which was Kathleen's uh, resignation. Um, I thought uh, I thought the sorry. And do you agree that it was a bad thing to do? Because I heard some people saying they thought it won them 
some more seats. And I, the day after that, or the the first weekday after that, the artificial intelligence right. uh, robot, which I pay attention to, had her down to one. Right. I, I I've suggested through the election that um, you know I was I was prepared to be generous and, and suggest that it was a decent move for you know folks in some ridings who where you know, I, I accepted the idea that it may allow people to vote for their local candidate but not want to wake up on election day to find that the liberals were back in power. I don't know if that's true, and, I, and it'd probably take a really in-depth research to figure out if it wasn't. But I was maybe because my party was was doing well in the polls, I was prepared to be magnanimous about. Uh, her decision uh, to to do that, but but I do think it really seemed to take the wind out of a lot of you know the, as days went on, uh, liberals in particular seemed to be really fussed by it. So it, it suggested to me that they probably lost a lot of momentum of just getting the campaign teams out and and, and that energy that you have to keep up. So I, I've come to to a view that it was probably uh, uh, more problematic than it seemed on first blush. I think two other quick points I would make there is Abacus asked a really good question. Post her making that uh, decision to liberal voters, uh, the question was, do you think we are going to win or lose the election? 50% of liberal uh, voters thought that they could win the election. So when the leader comes out and says... Uh, I'm not they did. Win like, the, what, uh, what planet were they on? I'm just telling you, whatever, <laughs> what, whatever planet they were on, 50% thought that the, they were going to win. So that's got to help uh, depress your vote. The second thing, and this is anecdotal from talking to a variety of different uh, liberal workers and others, it, it it was a bit of a punch in the gut to liberal workers. I know in Toronto Centre and a variety of other uh, ridings where I talked to people, that, that was, was not helpful. When. The the when Polly had the Liberals down to one, that one riding was Toronto Centre, and we and lost they, by ten thousand votes. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think there was big movement in. Uh, we lost with a fantastic candidate in Ottawa Centre by eight thousand votes. So some of the seats that we thought we were going to win, I think there was a bit of a stampede to the anti. Um, I was going to say Mike Harris, the anti Doug <laughs> Ford candidate, and. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, I don't think it worked, but that that's just my view. I mean, we were already seeing some Liberal candidates, even before Rit Drop, that were running without Liberal logos and then had moved even away from using red on their signs at all. Uh, John Fraser, who won his seat in Ottawa, uh, had moved over to yellow and gray and black <laughs> signs. It was, they got tr- more and more dark as the, as the things <laughs> got to, to Election Day. But, you know, it worked for him. It didn't work for some others who were a bit too uh, too tied from it. There's the other part of strategic voting and how people work and how people think. You know, we did some polling at Hill and & Knowlton, and the local candidate mattered about for 3% of the electorate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always more generous and say it matters for about 10%. Uh, but I think there are, there are some candidates who locally are just even more uh, relevant on the ground than their, than their parties were. And, uh, and we saw some of that. On, well, you know. it, in, in St. Paul's, mm-hmm. my writing, the, the NDP candidate that won was called out because she used a racial slur to describe the police chief. 
She's also the uh, she's a co-owner of Glad Day Bookshop. She's yes. she's fairly well known and fairly well liked. I can't speak to her particular comments, but I think one of the things that we've seen by some of the folks who did get elected on the on the ground, they were prepared to put in the hard work. They were knocking on doors, as all candidates are, uh, and people quite liked what they saw, and they saw it as an opportunity to win in St. Paul's, where frankly, traditionally, the New Democrats haven't always uh, won a lot of space there. I saw the local uh, New Democrat uh, councillor, Joe Mahavik, had endorsed her in, in uh, the last week or so of the campaign. We really saw where some of that was uh, were turning. And Joe is in St. Paul's not somebody who always endorses the New Democrat candidate. Uh, he is certainly a much more of a municipal politician uh, in, in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he came out and endorsed her. And we'll see what she's like once she gets to Queen's Park. And I think you're seeing a lot of people who woke up the day after the election, uh, including the Premier-designate Ford, uh, <laughs> yes. who are a bit a bit different the morning after when, when the enormity of Queen's Park and governing and what that looks like and what there needs to be uh, comes true. I think, uh, and you asked about turning points, and uh, I've taken a moment here to reflect on it, and I probably, you know, when we gathered after that debate two weeks ago, in some respects that was the... Uh, something of a turning point because that that you know bob you know as a comment you you, uh, you played uh, noted at the time the ndp really seemed to send it and if there was a time where i was nervous for the conservatives you know that was probably the peak my peak uh, uh, nervous uh, point and doug survived that uh, that debate andrea i actually think did well but the 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 criticism of, of her interrupting and those yeah. pieces, uh, you know, yeah. became came part of the narrative. But that really seemed to be, you know, as, as well as the NDP had done. And then, you know, I, I think Doug, you know, and the PCs, from that point on, the message became very simple. They, they just hammered on a few key themes. And there was still fireworks all around of, of local candidate issues and, and some other controversies. Of course, days before the election, the news about the, the, the lawsuit from Renata Ford. Wow, I um, thought that would have a bigger impact than it did. It, se- it seemed so late in it uh, that I that I felt it was going to yeah. be difficult to change things. But but still, the PCs were fighting these little, little crises as they came up. But the simple message, uh, and I, I think more of their vote w- became baked in at that point than uh, the, you know, the nervous Nellies uh, like me in, in the various campaigns uh, I, I were believed. I think the smartest thing that the Ford campaign uh, really oh. had done the entirety of the campaign was after the debate and seeing that uh, Mr. Ford's numbers weren't resonating with people, they actually did a press conference of, here are the 13 people we know will be key mm-hmm. players and we're ready to govern and this is what this looks like and for all of the to use Mike's point, the nervous Nellies in the conservative world who really wanted a Christine Elliott or a Caroline Mulroney really showcasing what that could look like, that he's not so scary, especially with women voters, uh, that that worked for him. And, and, and they stuck to that message, and I thought that that particular moment and that particular storyline worked well and for the I, conservatives. I, I, I agree with that, and, and quite frankly... Uh, the NDP have got to start uh, recruiting from some other place than the bar scene in Star Wars every four years. Uh, it is hurting them, uh, and they just lacked credibility in, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, comparisons with the Conservatives. And I think that just pounded them. So that was point number one. I was going to make point number two. What was the turning point for for the Ontario Liberal Party? 
it was 16 months before the election, and that's when it was decided for the Ontario Liberal Party. When the leader decided to stay at minus 55 in the polls, there's not a single person in the Western world who's been re-elected with those sort of numbers. Um, that really determined the outcome for the Liberal Party at that time. And quite frankly, nothing that happened in between made any changes. And it is what it is. And uh, I think you could have predicted it back then. And um, I think there's a lesson to learn there. Okay. Uh, let's take a call from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi. Well, if nothing else, you're going to have job security because you've got Doug Ford there and you've got the radical NDP on the left. Uh, you're going to have four years of non-stop things to talk about, number one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my job security. Oh, I'm relieved. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, you're, believe me, you're going to be a busy woman. Okay, but, good, good. I like being busy. <laughs> the, the one thing that really impressed me over the weekend uh, when Doug Ford came out about the uh, El Coots dem- demonstration and, and what happened down there, some of the hatred, uh, the, the signs that were put up, and he stood up. I thought, you know what, that to me said so much. The blinders have come off. We're going to have a real conversation. Uh, The political correctness, that's what I voted for. Okay, Bill, thanks for that. Okay, uh, just to, to fill people in before we go to break, uh, the Al-Quds demonstration, that means uh, Jerusalem in Arabic, and it's a very controversial demonstration because some of the messages are quite hateful. There's a big sign that said, kill them, no, behead them, uh, stab them, and uh, I forget what the last one is, but basically uh, saying exterminate Israelis. Uh, and uh, they are able to use Queen's Park without even paying a fee, unlike other uh, public events. And Doug Ford did come out against that. Right now, we have to take a quick break. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And uh, we will be back with our all-party party. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, we are back with our all-party election panel. Now, in the post-election news conference held by Premier Kathleen Wynne, or should I say... MPP designate Kathleen Wynne, she made a plea to Ford to give the Liberals official party status, even though they fell short of the eight-seat minimum. Now, personally, I think that took real chutzpah, given that the Liberals did not extend that courtesy to the NDP when they were in that situation in 2003. And listen to this. He needs to clarify, he needs to be open about the situation with his business, because if this is the credential that he's running on, that he's a businessman, and he knows how to run a business, and somehow that qualifies him to be the Premier of of Ontario, you know, and if that's under question, because there really isn't anything else that, uh, that he says qualifies him or that we can see that qualifies him, he better be clear about uh, the business. It is a very risky thing if Doug Ford is allowed to have a majority government in this province and there are different risks associated with uh, the NDP having uh, a majority government in Ontario. There has been such a disruptive um, uh, 
influenced by having a leader of the Conservatives that really hasn't laid out what he would do. I think that Doug Ford has been very much a central part of why this campaign and this election has been as different uh, as it has been from elections in the past. Let's just call this for what it is, out for what it is. Doug Ford sounds like Donald Trump, and that's because he is like Donald Trump. He believes in ugly, vicious, uh, a brand of politics that traffics in smears and lies. He'll say anything about anyone at any time. Because just like Trump, it is all about him. It's not about our people. It's not about their families. It's not about Ontario's success. It is about him. Go with your handout to the person you've just said those really, really nasty personal things about. I think she starts with sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Look, it's it's complicated. Um, having been representative of a party uh, that did not get official party status uh, when there was the reduction in seats in the legislature, uh, it, it's a difficult thing to find yourself on the very ugly side of election night. You know, we say things in the in the heat of battle, but there are, there's an accounting for that. And I think people needed to uh, really, I think in the words of Kendrick Lamar, sit down and be humble for a while. And I think we're going to see that going forward, at least for a little bit. We'll see how the parliamentary uh, caucusing works out. But Bob can speak to that a bit better. Yeah, you know, look, uh, I think uh, the Liberals could use a little uh, time in the penalty box. Uh, They'd been in office for 15 years. When I'm tired of them, that's not a good sign, uh, (laughs) let alone Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch. So, you know, I think uh, a little humility and a little time in the penalty box is is often good for any political party. So that means not to have the official status. Well, look, I I think they can probably work out some sort of functional deal with the Green member. Uh, They can caucus together, but not... uh, he can be do what he wants, maybe divide the money that you would get for caucus uh, research and administration. That would help the Greens. That would help the Liberals. That's an easy thing that can do. There's other parliamentary uh, precedents for doing something like that. So that's a route. Maybe doing something that happened in 2003 where, where there was a compromise and they did get some money and they did get some questions in the House of Commons or in the, in the legislature. That's another one. So in a weird way, too, it's a bit in the government's favor. I remember that from being there to have a divided opposition. So to shut the liberals out or to make sure that the Greens don't have a vo- voice in the le- legislature might actually give more power to the NDP. Um, so sometimes you want to divide and conquer when you're on the government side. So that's another consideration that you want to you want to make, too, as well, from what I recall. Yeah, you know, each of the parties comes out of this campaign. You know, there's always, you know, during the heat of the campaign, you go, well, well, that's a June 8th problem. You know, <laughs> now we're at June 8th, and the parties have a whole different set of issues they have to deal with. The, the conservatives, of course, have to figure out how to conduct government now. How do, how do they take their platform and, and turn it into government policy? How do they answer the expectations that they've created of Ontarians through this process? The liberals have, have this, this unique issue of uh, of just being one short of of party status and of course you say all and you played a lot of those great clips uh, you know all those things you say during the election uh, to get you there which uh, you would love in the situation you find yourself in to maybe take back but 
you know, these are uh, politics, if nothing else, has is a place uh, where long memories uh, are are held, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. And if as far you were as, advising Mike, would you say give it to them? Don't give it to them. Yeah. I'm in, as as a conservative, I I would be a little bit more. Uh, you know, I would like to see it play out a little bit. Uh, I like the. I think the conservatives might be happy to see a, a world where this is a, this is a bit of the attitude federally when we were when I was in Ottawa as well. If we had a, a government, a, a party system that was more two ideological parties, right and left, um, the, you know, that would, uh, you know, that'd be an interesting conversation. But do, our, um, Bob is probably ultimately right that uh, a little bit more division, you know, I could see offering some olive branch, but, you know, do you split, do you let Schreiner have a few, you know, as many questions as, as the lib leader as part of the compromise so that you, you really sort of split them up a little bit more? Um, There's a uh, great opportunity to be petty yeah no well and 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 everybody has their just a minute i mean i don't know maybe i'm being petty but some of those comments really i mean they're almost the the last one the trump comment especially in the context of the way trump is behaving now i mean i don't know is it is it petty to have a hard time with that i don't i don't think she said anything that a uh, competitor wouldn't say i don't have a problem with it you're in the heat of an election they all said uh things about each other i mean they accused her of being corrupt where there's never been so much as an iota of uh of uh, a shred of uh, information or evidence that she was, quote, corrupt. So there's all that sort of stuff that goes on uh, in politics. I don't take it terribly seriously, and I, I don't think people who are involved do. There is one thing, as I said, you know, they did get 860,000 votes and 20% of the vote in Ontario. I think for that, on that basis, they deserve to have a voice in the legislature, how that comes about, to be determined. And, you, look, and, you know, this is a... Uh there's probably some broader questions we can ask ourselves too when you look at what's happening in BC within a minority government situation where the greens in some ways are holding you know that province and the country hostage and the country yeah, yeah, yeah. um and, and we had you know which prompts and and we've seen after Doug's one uh one this week and because you know premier designate a lot of discussions about proportional representation and i do think there are some uh, dangers with that where we we find our province held hostage to sort of very small fractious sort of groups I, if we if I, we give them equal standing, so I, people always say that, and I've lived I lived in in Israel where right. small ultra orthodox yeah. like they have the whole country hostage right. and have forever in Italy. So I I don't know what the deal is, right. you know, and and you have no, I mean. There are problems with nomination meetings, but in that kind of a system, the party just names the candidates and numbers them. Who gets in first, second? I don't know. I liked uh, I liked uh, former Prime Minister Crutchan's uh, views on this expressed a couple days ago, and he said, fun. "You know what? You want to get in the house, get in the house properly." And uh, and so um, so I, I I'm prepared to take a tougher view on it. And it's the usual suspects who come out after the election, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, an arm of the NDP, the the Broadbent Institute, saying, "Oh, it's terrible. We need uh, uh, proportional representation." Had the NDP won uh, the way Bob Bob Ray did, you can bet that they wouldn't have sent that tweet out. So, you know, there, there's always this sort of after-the-election nonsense that happens from various organizations. I agree with you. I'm not a fan of proportional representation. I think it is uh, more chaos than uh, first-past-the-post. Neither are perfect, but uh, on balance, I prefer first-past-the-post. 
What I'm particularly excited about is the amount of women that are now going to be in the legislature, the amount of diverse yep. views that are going to be in the legislature. That will change the conversation and the tone. Uh, as much as everyone wants to say it's a hard left, a hard right, and all the rest of it, this will be, generally speaking, a legislature that find, tries to find some solutions. And I, and I think that that is going to be the case from all sides of the House. And I'm pretty excited about that, especially the amount of extraordinary women the amount of young people who are who are elected that will change the dialogue and the discussions of how public policy going forward yeah and before we take a call i just want to say that we had a couple of weeks ago a health care debate here liberals did not show up or send someone with 15 advocacy organizations but we had the two france jelina from the ndp and uh and uh, christine elliott from the pcs they hugged each other when they arrived, and they uh, violently agreed, and I think that bodes very well. Absolutely. You know, both are extra- have always been extraordinary health critics, and as, as you've, your listeners heard me say when I was last on, Franjelina had the New Democrats form government would have been a shoe-in for a uh, health, uh, mm-hmm. health minister, and I think everyone would have been okay with that. Yeah, she's a good MPP. She's a she's a very good MPP, a very good critic, and you'll see a lot of really good MPPs and a lot of really good critics being able to shine through. Okay, uh, let's go to the phones. We've got Jim in Hanover. Hi, Jim. Hi. I just wanted to make a comment there with Wynne wanting to be recognized, uh, her party. I mean, it seems like if the ro- rules don't suit Wynne, she, she wants to change them. And that's the way she operated when she was uh, the premier. If it didn't suit her... Changes to suit her. So here she is begging now uh, to be recognized as a party when the majority of the people got rid of her. She can't seem to accept that. Oh, I think she accepts that. Yeah. You, you it know. seems to be slow sinking into her. Uh, I don't know about that. I th- yeah. You know what? I think uh, if I was to be really uh, you know fair about it, I think any of the three main parties who found themselves with seven seats post this election would be making the, you know the same arguments and, and you know trying to find a way to be relevant in the in the coming uh, in the coming legislature. So uh, that's where they find they find themselves. But I'm I'm. I'm certainly prepared if, uh, if the PC government decides that, look, these are the rules going in. We all sort of knew, uh, we knew the numbers. We knew where you had to get to to get official party status. And if they decide to stick with that, uh, you know, I would, I would support and understand the logic in doing it. Uh, I imagine uh, compromise will prevail on some level if I, had to, if I had to bet $5. Okay, Jim, thanks. Let's go to Joyce in Scarborough. Hi, Joyce. Uh, hi, Libby. Okay. Um, if, if your guest had to worry about paying electricity or food, they'd, they'd sing another song. Now, talk about smears, which um, Wynne did uh, about, you know, about Ford. Like, my God, when, when the uh, Renata uh, lawsuit came up, uh, they didn't say, oh, gee, we can't comment. They, they said, oh, um, if there's smoke, there must be fire. I will never, ever vote for, like, NDP? What were they going to give us? Uh, what, what was it, the province sanctuary? Our hostels, everything are full, and they want to um, spend more taxpayers' money on economic refugees. Uh, do you think I was happy when I heard that? I was enraged. Like, like these, uh, okay, I'll, I'll just say I was... Uh, behind uh, 
Doug, 100% and will be always. Okay, Joyce, thanks for that. I'll let uh, Kim respond to that. So, in fact, Premier Designate Ford, when he was a city councillor, supported sanctuary cities. There are a number of uh, component pieces to that of how it could work. And and really, it's about uh, finding uh, ways to help people get the services they need without fear of reprisal. And I think there's some value in to have that conversation without it being the inflamed conversation that it often turns into being. It, it definitely is. A, a, it's something uh, that a lot of our callers actually kind of seem to, um, you know, it really resonates with them, I guess, because of uh, hallway medicine. Absolutely. And hallway medicine is going to be healthcare and how you deal with healthcare is a defining situation for every government in Ontario in particular, uh, every provincial government, how they're defined by it, how people are treated when they're in when they're in that vulnerable state of either taking care of themselves, their children, their parents. Uh, and, and that will be a challenge for the premier and his uh, and his cabinet. A big challenge. You know, to uh, equate illegal immigration or refugees to hallway health care is nonsense. If we didn't let in one refugee or if there wasn't one illegal uh, immigrant coming into the problems, we'd probably still have uh, 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 um, problems in terms of dealing with our For sure. uh, with our health care. You know, just, just based on the size of the population, we're getting almost 10% of people, uh, 10% of our population moving into the D- GTA, which is around 100,000, 120,000 people a year. So regardless of whether one other person showed up, we're going to have some serious problems there and we're probably going to be playing catch up for the next 15 years and i think it was a bit of a red herring the the whole conversation around that because i just don't believe that uh if a refugee uh here properly or not uh found their way to a hospital in toronto today that anybody was turning them away exactly Uh, so uh you know so so I, i do believe the conversation is a bit of a red herring but you know that doesn't mean I. You know we can't have. We need to have a conversation, and it it should be a top priority for for the PC government right now. What to do with the fact that uh, so many uh, the the refugee increase is is uh, mounting the way it is that our shelter system. Uh, coming this winter, what's going to happen? Because we're already at capacity before, you know, many of the homeless, you know, they, they, they make different, uh, you know, they sleep in the streets and they make different accommodations during the during the summer, but in the winter, that's not a possible. So that is a, is a real coming issue that needs to be held, uh, dealt with. The, the federal government needs to, to be involved. And of course, healthcare uh, will, will continue to be an issue. And I'm really, uh, you know, whether Christine Elliott's health minister or not, I know that she's going to be a really important, important voice in the PC government for uh, what we do uh, going forward. Okay, uh, we've got to take a quick break. We will be back with more from our panel. The numbers again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We'll be back with more of your calls and more from our panel. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are back with our panel. Uh, we have a little bit of time left. We're doing an election post-mortem. And uh, we were talking about health, one of the big challenges. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. There really, really was not much of a discussion of platforms and plans and 
one of the few things that all three parties talked about and were sort of specific about uh, were long-term care beds. Uh, basically, that's one of the reasons that the hospitals are so backed up is that you have patients who can't leave the hospital, should leave the hospital, but they have nowhere to go. So yeah. the response, all three parties said 15,000 long-term care beds in five years. The Conservatives said 30,000 in 10 years. Uh, here's wh what I found a little disturbing. In the last week, I talked to, I would say, our two most knowledgeable people on geriatrics and long-term care, and they both said, mm, not the right way to go. What, what did they suggest? Uh, it, it, I thought there was uh, unanimity on sort of that, uh, you know, that perspective that, that the hospitals are are clogged and, and there is a challenge of, of moving, you know, just moving people who deserve, who need a longer term care bed uh, out of the, the more urgent uh, emergency care offered by a hospital. And that's what would really help, uh, you know, move things along and get people the more urgent care in a timely manner they needed a hospital and that you would expect in a hospital. So, you uh, you know, there seems to, I'm sure there's other, other. you know, what I know about health care is it's never going to be just one thing that's going to solve it. And uh, whether it's those 15,000 uh, long-term care beds, uh, you know, offered by all parties, one thing is not going to solve it. It's a whole bunch of things that are going to be required. So basically what they said, now there there has been a little bit of an increase in home care, but the countries around the world that do not have hallway medicine have much, much, much uh, broader home care. And, sure. and even the home care that people, if, if you really need 10 hours, the system will give you three hours and you won't get your three hours because the, the, the personal support worker will probably run in and has six other places and will leave after 15 minutes. So I think what they're talking about is, is a fairly massive shift. And long-term care beds are very expensive to bring on stream. And people in the industry have basically said, there's no way we can get that with all the money in the world. We can't be ready with that. There really is a continuum of care that has yeah. to happen. And, you know, my, I look at my father, who we recently, at the beginning of the year, put into long-term care. Um, he had some extraordinary home care workers. Uh, but to your point, it, it becomes complicated, especially in rural and remote communities, uh, to get the amount of personal support you need. Uh, and this isn't a, a failing of the personal support workers. It's a it's a lack of enough uh, component pieces into the system. And what we're seeing in hospitals day after day is that they become almost a safety net. That if you're not getting the care you need at home because you're you don't have enough uh, support from a PSW or your children aren't nearby or you don't have the right services in your neighborhood, you end up in hospital and you end up there for a long time until you can get a long-term care bed or the home care uh, supports you need. So we really actually do need to have a bit of a an overarching strategy of making sure we people don't can have stay. A, a strategy and uh, the hospitals, they're the only place, an emergency room is the only place that you don't need a gatekeeper. Well, and we even, and this was one of the things Andrea had talked about on the dental care program. Making, we were seeing too many people end up at Emerge because they couldn't afford a dentist, and those mm -hmm. types of additional costs onto healthcare aren't helpful in the overarching. How do we, how do we solve hallway medicine? And I think that's going to be a big challenge uh, to to Premier Ford and uh, and his party.
And again, it's just really keeping up with growth here, you know, for, for all their faults, if I can put it that way. In the last 15 years, dozens of new hospitals got opened, 6,000 more nurses. There was a great new medical school focused on the north and attracting doctors in rural areas. That was very successful. Lowered wait times in a whole variety of uh, areas. That wasn't good enough, and it's still we've got hallway uh, hallway uh, healthcare to a great extent. So while they did manage to do a number of things well, uh, I th- there's still some big ticket I- I- items on the health file that uh, that need to be addressed. The other question that I have, uh, so Doug Ford says the first thing they've got to do is look at the books. So I am curious about what beyond the Financial Accountability Office and the Auditor General, what beyond that would would the auditors find and how long is it going to take? Well, first he said he's going to put it in an RFP to have an auditor come in and, and sort that out. So it's a bit of a challenge uh, just to get that all up and running. And, uh, and every government since uh, Caesar's been on the throne <laughs> immediately <laughs> says that the previous government uh, uh, overspent and golly geez, we can't do everything that we said we were going to do. Uh, and they usually say that, well, they figure out what they're doing. So there'll be a little bit of that going on. Uh, because we do have a strong Auditor General, they disagreed on how to account for a couple of things, but by and large they agreed on the numbers. It was how you accounted Ooh. for it. Yeah. <laughs> they agreed on the basic numbers. They disagreed on how you accounted for it. So Off so, so that's uh, that's one uh, one thing. I you know, the bond rating agencies were pretty clear uh, over the term of the government that they thought that the numbers were uh, were realistic. Whether we're whether going they, in the wrong direction, I think no, I agree on. with that. But they they didn't say these are fraudulent numbers. You've never heard that from any of no. the bond rating no. agencies. So, I think the numbers are probably close to what they are. Uh, whether you agree with them or not is is a is a fair and another thing. But I don't expect to see a massive difference in them. It, look, I I think it's uh, it's one thing you know we ha- we have some warnings and we, we uh, from the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Office, but I think it's another thing uh, for the government to really get in to be able to sit down with finance officials and and and, and peel things back and ask the questions that they want to to um, determine what's there. And I think it's one of the reasons that Ontarians accepted the idea that um, the, the costing of a platform was 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 a, was a you know, well, well, the op, you know, the NDP and the Liberals said, you know, PCs. Where is your costed platform? Uh, for the reasons that Bob has just uh, suggested, that uh, Ontarians and, and and voters in general have grown a little bit cynical of the process uh, of of you know people having costed platforms. Then they get the real numbers, and then they say, okay, here's what we can really do. And I think uh, in the approach that the PCs had, they've maybe ameliorated that a little bit by saying, this is where we've made commitments to spending. We are going to have to see the books, and I think. I think it's reasonable to expect that they would need to see the books, given the warnings there has been from the Auditor General about the uh, about the approach to the account. And, you know, we brush it off as just accounting principles, but accounting principles are pretty important when you're talking exactly. uh, about They're, running a government. The, okay. So, Let's hear from William in Toronto. Hi, William. Hi, Liv. Um, I've developed a great disdain for Mr. Ford. He's a good sloganeering person, and he can. And now that the sloganeering's over, what now? Nothing. I say, if he's going to uh, get anywhere, he's going to have to assign uh, things for other people to do and delegate him and re- cooperate with other parties. Example: If he wants to solve the health care debacle, uh, he can assign uh, Andrea Horvath and Christine Elliott to take care of the task. 
and he can go on vacation somewhere and stay out of the way and come back and get all the credit for it. Um, I think he's deceived Ontario, and I think his credibility is going to go right down the tubes if he uh, gives uh, a status to official status to the Liberals, because the people have spoken. You don't want the Liberals there. It's obvious. Okay. Okay, William, that's uh, that's pretty clear. I think we get your drift. Thank you very much okay, for that. Good, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. The uh, well, uh, I think the Ontarians have spoken, and uh, you know we have a majority government today uh, at Queens Park uh, with the uh, under the PC banner, and uh, you know I get sort of the backhanded uh, sort of compliment of sloganeering, but really it's that simple sort of message that resonated with Ontarians and uh, that cut through. So uh, you know. Uh, and and you know further I, I will agree with the agree with the um, the caller that there is a, you know maybe not Andrea Horvath but there is a great team uh, from which uh, Doug can pick uh, to form a cabinet and uh, I think we're really going to have a really you know first rate first flight uh, cabinet uh, you know leading this province so I look forward to that and one of the things I would say too is I think one of the good things still in Canadian politics uh, is look there was an election somebody won. I think we should give that person an opportunity to govern. A lot of people, a uh, lot you know of people what? say that. I, I, I have to agree with that. I, I didn't vote for him. Uh, I'm not particularly a fan, but you know what? He won fair and square, and he deserves an opportunity to uh, to run the government. And we can make uh, a decision based on his performance in the, over the next couple of years. But um, we shouldn't be trying to put in roadblocks and. Hopefully we won't have the you know permanent election and nastiness that you see between Trump and Hillary Clinton and that sort of nonsense uh, manifesting itself here in Ontario. I think he should be given an opportunity. He's earned it. Okay. And, yes. And Twenty it was, seconds each. And it was you know a very different uh, Doug Ford Premier Elect Premier Designate on Friday morning at his press conference than we saw on the campaign trail and on the weekend and on the weekend. And so I'm as an Ontario. I want nothing better than my government to be a, a not only a stable government, but a rational government. And that's what I'm looking forward to the most. And we have uh, an official opposition with Andrea Horvath that is prepared to keep them to account. Yeah, I, lo- I think the uh, weight of office uh, on anybody's shoulders has an influence and an impact. And that's, uh, I think there's a capacity for Doug to sort of grow in the leadership role that he has now uh, been given. And uh, I really look forward to seeing uh, seeing what type of premier he will be. Uh, you know, I, there's a simple idea that I always believe that the voter is right. Uh, Ontarians uh, have chosen uh, their government. And uh, so I look forward to seeing how Doug and the team around him put that together in the coming days. Okay. That's all the time we have for Fight Back for today. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, Kim Wright, and Mike Van. And Solon. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.